Okay, I think I am ready to go. Let's begin by going before the Lord and asking for His blessing upon His word that I may speak, that which is faithful and true, and also that you may hear how and what the Lord wants you to actually hear. Okay, so let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again this hour that you've granted us to come before you by way of the preaching of Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray that the Holy Spirit would grant us the ears to hear, that he would give me the ability to speak that which is true and faithful for the edification of your people. Lord, we honor you, we glorify you for all things we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, good morning, one and all, whoever is tuned. Okay, I pray, as I prayed, <laughs> that the Lord will bless you with the understanding. And we have a way that we do our teaching. And the way is such that we are going to be blessed or benefit more if you are a consistent listener than if you're just coming and listening today and then you're gone another three months and then you come back. You're not going to benefit much because we do a lot of weaving from chapter to chapter. We assume that you learned some things from the previous messages, whatever book we are working on. And so today we are in Exodus chapter 8. And that assumes that you had everything that we said from Exodus chapter 1. Because it has a strong bearing to the development of our teaching. Okay? Also, we are probably going to start our teaching through the book of Romans next week. Next Sunday, most likely, we'll begin our verse-by-verse teaching from the book of Romans the introduction is a lot of work. That's why I'm kind of lingering. <laughs> but I think next Sunday we'll be ready for that. So, our sermon title, today we're not going to read the text because there's a lot of text. So, we'll read the text when we get to it. So, we're going to just begin by developing the theology of our message, the theology that God is teaching from the book of Exodus. And we'll begin by way of title. We have two titles for our message, but not one of them captures everything that is in there to capture. So I always use, or most of the time, I use more than one title. Number one title is The Finger of God. The Finger of God. And number two title is not one remained. Not one remained. And as I said, we are back in Egypt because that's where all the fun stuff is at this time in Israel's history and to all intents and purposes in world history. But most importantly, in the unfolding, in the unfolding history, and drama of Christ. 
this story is not ultimately about Israel, but is about Christ Jesus. World history is not about men and women and is not driven by men and women, but by the Lord Jesus. Yeah? Whatever we do does not cause anything. Rather, it is an unfolding of things on God's timeline as he moves everything to its appointed end. Everything is appointed to end in Christ. Because in him, all things consist. And everything has to be put under his feet. Okay? So, with that understanding, the thinking of human free will is just uncalled for. It is not something that I tolerate. I just despise the thinking. There's nothing called human free will. We will talk to it in the message somewhere. Okay? But in Egypt, as everywhere else in the scriptures, God was teaching in very practical terms the issues that surround the redemption of his people. And so the whole matter was staged in a foreign country, and that is very purposeful, a foreign country that is Egypt, because ultimately God's people are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are in a foreign country. And so when the Christ came, he came to the world and he even said, I am not of this world. He came to his people who are in the world, but are not of the world. So God staged the drama of Christ in Egypt for that reason. And God alone is the teacher of the things of Christ. When God is teaching, he does not teach anything or speak apart from Christ, which means apart from the gospel testimony, because everything in creation ultimately is the testimony of Christ. It is the gospel testimony. Whether we see it or don't see it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's what God is teaching. So we must understand that Adam was there so that God would teach us about Christ. Because in and through Adam, we are introduced to the type of Christ first and foremost. Adam is the first type of Christ that we have introduced. But through him, we also have understanding of the relation between sin, law, and death. Law is commandment. And it doesn't have to be the codified Commandments of Mount Sinai. Even the seemingly mundane and simplest of commandments like do not eat from that tree or do not eat those Cheerios or else you die or in the day that you eat those Cheerios you shall surely die. <laughs> that will bring eternal condemnation. As far as God is concerned, it doesn't matter how simple the commandment is, if you disobey it, there is always, with regards to God, 
death attached to your disobedience. Okay? The Bible says, the soul that sins must die. And sinning is a transgression of the commandment, even though it may seem very simple to us. And in Egypt, we are here to see the further development of that relationship of sin, law, and death. And God has demonstrated this matter by way of bondage that his people have come under by way of Pharaoh, by way of his decree and his taskmasters. But this obviously was not by Pharaoh's design. Pharaoh did not come up with this idea of enslaving God's people. And all the ensuing drama, this is not of Pharaoh's making, but of God. But Pharaoh, as the sovereign of the land, has brought God's people under bondage, and he worked his decree to oppress them through his taskmasters. And so God as the sovereign. In the Bible, whenever you see a sovereign king, even though they may be brutal, they're still representing the sovereignty of God. Okay? And so God as a sovereign works his decree to bring all men under sin and death through the law. You have to understand this relationship of sin, law, and death. Sin is an instrument in God's design to bring about his decree of salvation by the imputation of the righteousness that was accomplished by Christ Jesus. And apart from sin, you could never have the righteousness of Christ. That's how it works. Apart from sin, you could not have the righteousness of Christ. This is what God means by sin. We mean stealing from people. We mean covetousness and all these other things. But God means that by your sin, the only way to come before him is by the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Christ imputed and freely. And from Pharaoh's hand, no Israelite could set themselves free except Moses. And from God, no sinner can set themselves free except Christ, <laughs> who was without sin. So all of Israel was essentially in bondage, except Moses who was raised in the house of Pharaoh. That is some really crazy gospel nugget to me. <laughs> And that is a picture of Christ who was raised as the son of God in God's house. Christ who, though born under the law, was not in bondage to the law. Christ was not in bondage to the law because he was not a sinner. Okay? Not in bondage to sin. Just as we saw in a picture of Moses who was born in Egypt and raised in Pharaoh's house, as a son or a child of Pharaoh through Pharaoh's daughter, but raised under the law because of his mother, Jochebed, who was a Levite, who also doubled as the nanny. Moses' mother became the nanny to raise Moses in Pharaoh's house. 
is the son of Pharaoh. And this is all speaking to Christ. This is not by accident, okay? So Moses was not under the decree of enslavement as the rest of Israel were. Why? Because the mediator of salvation has to be one who is accustomed with the ways of the sovereign. They have to be accustomed with the ways of the sovereign. They have to know God. As for Moses, he has to know Pharaoh and is recognized by the sovereign. As Moses was recognized by Pharaoh, can freely approach the sovereign without dying and has to be free of that which enslaves the very people that they seek to redeem. So Christ came as the son of God who could approach God by reason of being God and by reason of being the sinless man and yet was not with sin. Yeah, He did not suffer from the very thing that he came to redeem his people from. So all that to say, Christ Jesus, the son of God without sin, is he alone who is qualified to mediate and approach God on behalf of an enslaved people. So God has shown us that the taskmasters of Egypt were there to demand and enforce a certain daily quarter of work, of bricks. And at the height of their slavery, the slavery of the Israelites, Pharaoh has said he was not going to help these people anymore with their straw. But they were to go and fend for it, every little bit of it, which they needed to meet their daily quarter. They had to meet their daily quarter. They had a standard to meet on a daily basis. And that's speaking to the nature and demands of the law that it does not help a sinner in righteousness. And yet, it does not relax or reduce the standard. The law does not help the sinner. The law has a standard of righteousness that has to be met on a minute, maybe second by second basis day by day, week by week, month by month, year to year, from when you were born to the second that you die. That is what the law actually demands of a person. Any other understanding of the law that is apart from that is false teaching, is a lowering of the standard that God requires that he has given us by way of Christ coming and giving testimony to that reality. Okay, a failure of meeting the standard of the law is met with a stiff penalty of death. Righteousness is not what happens when you decide to be righteous. Okay, righteousness is not what happens when you decide to be righteous this weekend. It is a continuous exercise of doing righteousness. As I said, 
from birth to death. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the Lord to do them. That's Galatians 3.10. So the quarter of righteousness was not lowered by grace. As many people think of the law, grace is not a lowering of the standard of righteousness, but was established to be unbendable. And that is why it is freely given. The reason why righteousness is freely given is because it's unreachable. You and I cannot do it. Okay? So grace is not law on discount. Grace is not law on discount. So progressive sanctification cannot be correct. But it's telling us that we now have ability to do the law. No, that can't be true. We have no ability to do the law. There's only one person who had ability to do the law. And it was Christ Jesus. We have no ability to do the law even on our very best day. Okay? So the children of Israel have been reading in agony of their slavery and their agony and cry had reached the heavens and the Lord had had it. And he came down and at this point, the Lord is working another vantage point of the gospel and saying, this is how Pharaoh, the sovereign, the power behind the bondage is going to be approached for the deliverance of the people who are in slavery. And that is the picture of God the Sovereign, who is the power behind all things. Sin has no power without God. Okay? The law cannot cast apart from God. There's nothing and nobody who can cast anybody apart from God. God is the power behind everything. All those things do not have power of themselves. Impossible. God has all the power. That's why he is called the Almighty. So if you are the Almighty, it means you have 100% the power. So how much power does that leave you if God is the Almighty? <laughs> it leaves you with nothing. Okay? The Lord begins by way of miracles as he approaches Pharaoh. He begins to introduce himself by way of miracles and he commissioned miracles and plagues to try and persuade Pharaoh to let the people go. But the Lord had also said at the very beginning that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would not let the people go, so that Pharaoh would not set the people free, which was the subject of our previous message last week. So God purposefully hardened Pharaoh. In other words, he made him stubborn so that he would not let the children of Israel to go free. And we argued that God is the first cause and first mover 
in all things. God is the first cause. Always. God does not play chase or the game of checkers with anyone. He doesn't do that. God is not waiting for you to make a move, then you make a move. It does not work like that. If you make a move, he has caused you to make a move. And that drives some people crazy. When it comes to sin, they'll be like, okay, how can that be? Well, that's the truth of it. Because God has a purpose from eternity. And that purpose cannot be thwarted or frustrated by the actions of his creatures, whether good or bad. Your belief or unbelief does not change anything about what God purposed to do. God purposed to save you in spite of your unbelief. You did not come to God in salvation because you believed. You believed because he came to you. He was the first mover, always the first cause. Without faith, we could not come to him, and yet faith is a gift that he gives. Okay? I need you to pay attention to what is happening. There is on display in our story two ways of salvation. The first way is by way of a show of miracles and plagues to persuade Pharaoh to set the people free. And I'm going to have to qualify that statement because someone who doesn't have all the context of what I'm teaching is going to come and say, oh, I heard James Guyo say there are two ways of salvation. There are no two ways of salvation. There's only Christ and the cross for salvation. But God is teaching that one of the ways is not the way of salvation. It does not work. Just as Jesus said, there's a narrow way and the broad way. Both are promising salvation, but there's only one that works. That's exactly what I'm saying, because someone's going to come and say that even after I'm dead. Okay. The other way does not work. But God still has to present that to us. That we may see why Christ is the only way. Okay? A people in bondage cannot be set free by way of miraculous signs. People who are in bondage cannot be set free by way of salvation, by just a show of miracles. And that is why even in much of the so-called preaching that is happening in the Pentecostal churches and this prosperity, so-called churches, they promise salvation in miracles. Miracles don't set people free who are in bondage. They need to know the real truth of what God has accomplished in Christ. That's where the freedom is because Jesus said, the son is he who sets free, and the one that he has set free is free indeed. So if they're not hearing about the son who sets free, they can never be set free. So God shows us that people who are in slavery to sin and death cannot be set free by miracles. Okay? There has to be 
satisfaction of sin. There has to be an understanding of the issues that is cause people to be in bondage. And the issue is sin. And you can't talk sin apart from the law. So, once you have those two elements, then you need satisfaction, you need propitiation. Someone has to make payment. There has to be a shedding of blood. Because that's what God determined to be done. And so, when you go to Genesis 3, I believe Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover themselves with the fig leaves. And we were having a Bible study with the kids this past week, and we were talking about the fig leaves. And Tawanda, my oldest son, said, well, did they make them out of poison ivy? <laughs> <laughs> a suggestion <laughs> but my point was God ended up having to cover them okay God came and covered them with the animal skins which means he covered them with something that had gone through death Something had to die for them to have their covering. And God is already preaching that if anybody is going to be covered of their sins, then someone has to stand in their place. There has to be some blood shedding for them to have the covering. And God is he who has to do the covering. So sin is what brought slavery through the commandment. And thus there is need for propitiation of sin if God is going to be setting people free. So any preaching that does not deal with this matter of propitiation can never be faithful. So either Christ already made total satisfaction for all of your sins of all time, or he did not. And if he did, you are so saved. <laughs> it's so done. And after the plagues we shall find the true way of setting a people free. We have a lot of wonderful things that are yet to come in the book of Exodus. But it must be observed that whilst we are at this point, miracles do not make people believers. Okay? That's the point that God is also working here. Miracles do not make people believers. We saw that with the Lord Jesus. He performed so many miracles, and yet people hated him. Also, the law cannot set people free who are in bondage to it. Why? Because it is not in the best interest of the law to set sinners free. Because that is not what the law does. The law was not given to set people free but to bring to bondage. The son is the one who was given to set free. Moses is there for enslavement. Christ is there for freedom. It is for freedom that Christ set us free and do not be entangled again by Moses, by the yoke of slavery. 
when sinners are set free without proper payment, it is called corruption, not righteousness. If you go to the county jail, prison, and you just go with the key and set everyone free before they've done their time, it's called corruption. That's not righteousness. However, it is grace that has an investment in setting sinners free who were on death row. Grace is what sets sinners free. Yeah? It gives the law what the law requires without any payment from the offender. That's what grace is saying. That through Christ, God has given the law what the law demanded of you. And so the law has been satisfied with what was given on your behalf. Yeah? And so with that introduction, we go now into the text and we begin with the second plague of the frogs. The first having been the turning of all the water in Egypt into blood. And if you still recall, we remarked that which was the source of life for the people of Egypt became a source of death. All their water was turned into blood and undrinkable, unusable. Just as many think that the law is the source of life, and yet the commandment that was given to bring death. The law seems to be the source of life, but no, it is actually the commandment that was given to bring death. That's what Paul argued very well in Romans chapter 7, but let's go to Exodus chapter 8 and beginning at verse 1 to 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, we shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come upon you, on your people, and on all your servants. So the frogs were to just come and overwhelm the Egyptians and occupy every space space that mattered to them. Frogs, big frogs, small, little frogs, green frogs, yellow frogs, slimy frogs, bull frogs, making a lot of annoying frog noise. <laughs> and frogs can get very irritating very fast. And God literally rains them on Egypt. Verse 5 to 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Aaron, 
Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt, and the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. So God again spoke through Moses and Aaron. Okay? And Moses was to deliver the instruction to Aaron as his mediator and prophet to Pharaoh. And Aaron did as was commanded him and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt and God demonstrating that he had power and still does have power over his creation. And of course, the magicians did so to some extent with their enchantments. They would have made a lot of money in Vegas doing shows like that. <laughs> but there are always magicians in every generation. We always have magicians in every generation. The false gospel preachers, these are the magicians. Okay? They have their enchantments. Verse 8 and following, still in Exodus 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So Pharaoh does not like the froggy situation. And so he goes to Moses and Aaron, and tells them to entreat the Lord to remove them, and then he would let the people go. But the truth of the matter is that Pharaoh had no power to let the people go. This is something that you have to understand. Pharaoh continues to give these conditions and then say, well, if you do this, then I will let the people go. No. Pharaoh has no power to let the people go. He is not the one who can let the people go. He thought he had the power. Just like Pilate after him, who asked the Jews whom he should set free, Jesus or Barabbas. Jesus could not be set free by Pilate. God cannot be set free by a sinner. There's no way, there's no way that Jesus is going to be set free by a sinner. Jesus did not need to be set free. It's Pilate who needed to be set free. It's Barabbas who needed to be set free. That decision was never for Pilate to make. He could not make that decision. Only God can make the decision to set a sinner free. Because Christ came to set sinners free. And so, Barabbas the sinner had to be set free. Yeah? Barabbas had to be set free. And that not by Israel. Israel sounded like they voted for Barabbas to be set free. No! Israel could not set another sinner free because Israel was already in bondage not only to Rome but also to sin. They could never set Barabbas free and they could not set Jesus free. The one who set Barabbas free 
is Christ who stood in the place of Barabbas. And Christ did not need Barabbas to agree with him. Because salvation by grace is not seeking for you to agree with it. It's something that is imposed on you. God imposes his salvation on all those that he has chosen. Grace cannot be chosen. Grace chooses. Grace cannot be. There's no one who's choosing salvation. Salvation comes by grace because it's grace that chose. And grace imposes itself. And I know when you use the language of impose, people don't like it. But that's what God does. Salvation was imposed on us. We were not looking for it. Okay? Verse 9, going back to Exodus 8. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the, in the river only. See that Moses is interceding for Pharaoh, his servants, and his people. Because only Moses speaks that which God hears. And this is what many people and many other religions do not understand. They do not understand the issues of salvation because they don't know the true God. They are ignorant with respect to righteousness. And so they think they can just approach God anyhow and make a plea or any plea and sidestepping God's appointed mediator, Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. You cannot sidestep Jesus. Okay? So he said, Verse 10, tomorrow, and he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. So Moses said, O king, it shall happen as you have requested, that you may know that you may know there's no one like the Lord our God. This is the test of prophecy. Because there are so many prophetic ministries. Today, so much foolishness was said. In the name of God, in the name of Christ. But those things that they claim to happen or will happen are not happening. And yet, amazingly, those ministries are not losing people. They keep growing. <laughs> they keep growing. The very opposite is happening. And yet people keep flocking to them to hear a word from Papa. Yeah? A new word for the season, for the new year. <laughs> itching ears. Apostle Paul called them just itching ears. But this is what God says about prophets and prophecy. Deuteronomy 18, 22. 
I just said to take out this section, the context of that is speaking of Christ as the other prophet who is like Moses that God was promising to bring. But then God says this. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. <laughs> so God says, that's the test. If someone comes and claims to have heard from me and that thing did not happen, they were making it up. Don't listen to them and don't fear them. And that is what is happening in our day. Much of what is called forecasting, if not all of it, much of what is called prophecy, I meant to say, is just weather forecasting. At the very best. If not witchcraft. At the very worst. Yeah? But Moses says, all the frogs shall be removed and shall remain in the river only. Boundary set for them. Question. How did God command these creatures to get into people's homes in the first place? How do you speak to a frog? How did he speak to all those animals that went into the ark? Jesus said, if you still remember, if the people, when he was going into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and the people were singing, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And some of the Pharisees and the Jews were not impressed by that and told Jesus, tell your people to be quiet. And Jesus said, well, if these were quiet, these very rocks would cry out. The rocks would cry out. That is how. If the rocks could cry out. And Jesus was not bluffing. He meant it. If the rocks could cry out in recognition of the person and of the moment, then it is very easy, was very easy for the Lord to command all these creatures to do his bidding. If he's able to make the rocks to speak, the snail to go in the ark, the frogs to get into people's homes, then he is able to talk to the infants and the mentally challenged. Because some people say sovereign grace, but sometimes I think they don't really understand what it means. Because they will say sovereign grace and yet continue to attach conditions. Sovereign grace salvation means God does 100% of all things. Salvation. He makes all willing. In the day of his power, he makes them willing. Just as he did with us. We cannot put limitations on God. Because what is impossible with man is very much possible with him. His hand is not short to serve. 
and whom he wills, he will serve. Whom he wills, he will serve. There's no limitation that is imposed on a person that God cannot overcome. That's the point. It doesn't matter what the limitation is. If God desires your salvation, you are going to be saved. Even if you can't even write your name down, you'll be saved. Salvation has never been about the doing of man, but of Christ as the surety and substitute for the very person that he's serving. And it's still that is message for people to accept because they still want to do something to prove that they are saved. No, it's all of Christ. Okay? Verse 12 and following. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtiers and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So Moses interceded to the Lord and the Lord killed all the frogs. But when Pharaoh had some relief, he did not set the people free. See what Pharaoh is doing. Because that is what a lot of people do, especially professing Christians. Pharaoh would make a commitment, make a vow, a New Year's resolution, a covenant to God when things were working against him and say, if the Lord would just do this for me, remove this thorn in the flesh, remove these frogs in my house. Be careful Someone may be thinking that you are a frog in their house that needs to be removed. <laughs> and I, in turn, will do what he says. If God, if you just remove all my problems, my troubles, these frogs, these lies, then I will. You are conditioning God's blessing on you performing something that you said you would do. But as soon as the situation has turned around, what do we do? Do we honor our commitments? No, we don't. So I'm here to say, stop making new covenants with God. Covenants that are based on our own faithfulness because we are not faithful people. We may have a conviction of faithfulness in the midst of a trial, but as soon as things get better, we default or we back out on our earlier promises because let us be honest, we are not that honest. That is why salvation is not based on our faith but the faithfulness of Christ. So it is important for us to know that God does not honor our little 
and bloodless covenants that we make with him. He honors that one covenant, that eternal covenant that he made by the blood of Christ. The promises in that covenant are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God never ever changes his mind on his blessing on the elect just because they did something crazy this week or next week. And so if you want to really know what is God's opinion, God's thinking about you as a believer, also as one who is still dealing with sin, you have to know you have to understand, you have to appreciate, you have to believe what he says in that covenant of the blood of his son. Everything else is subjective and the subjective is always changing and cannot be relied on. You cannot continue to evaluate your eternity on the subjective things of your doing. You have to look to Christ and what God says about what Christ did. That's the only way to have stability. Okay? Let's go to the third plague. Verse 16, the plague of lies. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lies throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth and it became like lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So the Lord continues to tighten the squeeze on Pharaoh and he brings lies. It's amazing that God knows that there's lice and it's itching. It itches when it bites you. <laughs> I had some lice bites some way, way back when, when I was a teenager or so. The bite has an intense signature itch to it. <laughs> and they produce this tickling, kind of annoying feeling of just feeling something is moving in your hair. Okay, yes, I used to have a lot of hair back in the days. <laughs> now imagine all the dust of the land of Egypt becoming lice. And that means every fabric, every place imaginable was now lice infested. And that means everyone was itching and scratching and no time to take a good selfie when you're under such itchy conditions. <laughs> verse 18 now the magicians so wagged their enchantments to bring forth lies but they could not so they were lies on man and beast now the magicians ran out of tricks they tried to replicate this miracle but they failed and so they had a confession to make. Let us hear how high their theology was. Verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. 
But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. So the magicians come to the realization that this is no ordinary trick that Moses and Aaron are pulling. This surely is the finger of God. But where did they get this from? Because they're telling the truth. The magicians were telling the truth. And none can tell the truth apart from getting it from God. Even if they don't understand the implication of what they have just said. And God is notorious for doing that with people. He does not need for one to be a believer for them to do or say what he wants them to do or say. And you must be someone who appreciates God's absolute sovereignty to see this point. This was not a fluke. False prophet Balaam spoke blessing on Israel, and yet his business was cursing people. <laughs> yeah? He was a false prophet. Pilate spoke that which was true about Christ, even though he was an unbeliever. He said Christ was a righteous man. The Roman soldiers, oh, this was a righteous man. Even Miss Pilate came and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. But the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They'd seen something different. They'd come to the end of their own powers. I hope there was some repentance. But if God is introducing himself to anyone, they will come to the same conclusion. They will know that he is the Lord when they realize that righteousness cannot be duplicated through magic tricks of religion and false piety. At some point, you have to come to the end of yourself. That's the point. You have to come to the end of yourself and say, Oh, Lord, it's all about you. It's all about your work. It's all about your righteousness. It's all about your doing. Just as the woman with the issue of blood, she came to the end of herself. You have to come to the end of yourself. Otherwise, Christ profits you nothing. As long as you still think that you have some ability to be righteous, Christ profits you nothing. God will not bring anyone to Christ who still thinks they have some other way of salvation. Christ is the only way of salvation. Okay? In judgment to condemnation or salvation, all who have been born of God shall come and confess that Christ is the Lord. Those born of God who confess Christ as the Lord our righteousness and those not born of God who still confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what Philippians 2 says. Every knee shall bow. 
Every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. And that's going to happen in both salvation and judgment. Everybody's going to know that Jesus is Lord, whether they're saved or not. But now the question is, what are we saying about Jesus? In what manner is he the Lord for us? He is the Lord our righteousness. He is the Lord our life. That is how we relate to Christ. We do not relate to Christ in judgment. We relate to Christ in salvation. He is our mediator. He is our high priest. He is our sacrifice. He is our advocate. He is our life. That's how we relate to Christ. So when we say he is Lord and Savior, that's what we mean from the side of those who are born of God. Okay, let us hear from Luke 11. Let's go to Luke. We have to go to the book of Luke. Jesus has something to say that I believe may be related to Exodus chapter 8. A house divided cannot stand. Luke eleven sixteen and following. I think I'm going to read all the way to 23. Luke says, Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me is scatters. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Okay. But we will not stop there. Let's go to Matthew 12. Matthew 12 from 22 to 31, not 32. Matthew records and says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So you have two testimonies there. Some say the son of David, the messianic title, and others say, well, this is the working of the devil. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, 
and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And we'll go to verse 31 and 32 for the unpardonable sin. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven man. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The magicians said, Guys, this is the finger of God at play. And Jesus came and said, he was casting out demons by the finger of God. And the same Jesus tells us who or what the finger of God is. And Jesus also, just before I expand my point, is telling us to go back to Egypt to say, the one who is now casting out demons is greater than Moses and Aaron. But he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, Luke says, casting out demons by the finger of God. And Matthew says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. So essentially, the finger of God is the Holy Spirit. It's been defined. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of holiness. And that means cleanliness. And it is by him that God works miracles. There's none who is made clean who does not have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit superintends the giving of gifts to God's people in all the history of God's people. The Holy Spirit gifted man in the Old Testament with all abilities of crafts and whatever, even prophecy. In the New Testament, it is the Holy Spirit who gifted the apostles and God's people to work miracles. So essentially, it is him who works the miracles. That's his department. And this why Jesus speaking on demonology said a demon cannot be expelled apart from God granting it. And yet a demon can be expelled but without necessarily having the Holy Spirit coming and taking up residence. And where that happens Jesus said this in Luke 11. 
Just because someone has a demon that has been removed does not automatically mean that the Holy Spirit is going to stay in the person. Because all that God needs to get a demon out is to command it. Yeah? But hear what Jesus said about this matter. Because someone, a sister, asked me about that a few days ago. Luke 11, verse 24. Luke 11, verse 24. Jesus said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. So, which means the spirit is more at home when it possesses someone. It needs a body. It needs a person to possess. That's according to Jesus. He then says, I will turn to my house from which I came. So that's my, my house now. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. But before you were demon possessed, going crazy. Now you are swept and put in order. You look good and normal. Okay? Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Jesus knows all these details. How do you know all this stuff? How do you know that demons are going to go and say, okay, I found some empty space. How do you know that? It's only Christ who knows this business. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying many things here. But... The reason why I came to this text is in the context of religion, one who is not filled with the Holy Spirit can look swept with the house in order. They look clean and put in order. That's what Jesus said. Very religious, very polite, very kind people. And not have the Holy Spirit. And we know that they don't have the Holy Spirit because they don't believe the true gospel. They don't. That's the testimony that one is inhabited by the Spirit of God because he testifies that we are the children of God. He testifies that Christ is the Lord. And he testifies of the things that are freely given us and he constantly points to the person and work of Christ. That's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. There's no demon that points to the work of Christ. The one who is clean and put in order and yet without the Holy Spirit, they have some religion. But they will continue to ascribe some things about salvation to their own will, to something that they did. And according to Jesus, is demonic teaching to ascribe the matters of the glory of Christ in salvation to your will and decision is demonic. And Jesus says that house is empty. <laughs> it's an empty house, even though it looks swept and put in order. But then, this area requires a standalone message, but I'm 
with the time that I have with other things that I have to say, I'm still going to speak to some things. Jesus also, in this teaching, spoke to the matter of the unpardonable sin. And that has caused many and endless headaches and questions from people wanting to know if they have committed or will commit it. This is what has happened. The Jews came and accused Jesus to try and discredit his testimony as the Son of God by saying he was working miracles by the power of Satan, accusing Jesus of being a magician. Jesus was not a magician. And to that Jesus said, no, that does not make sense because a house divided against itself will not stand. So if I am of Satan, why would I want to drive my partner, my business partner out of business? This is a lucrative business if, yeah, it doesn't make sense. But if I am doing this by the finger of God in contrast to the work of the magicians, the Holy Spirit, then know that salvation has come. Just as it happened in Egypt, salvation had come because Christ had come and said, I have come to set my people free. And guess what? When we get to Exodus 11 and 12, salvation had actually come for God's people. Then know that salvation has come. If I am doing this by the finger of God. And the finger of God by which I cast out demons is the very one who also testifies of me and my salvation. The very finger of God by which I cast out demons also brings testimony of who I am. And my salvation. Thus, if you reject his testimony, then there is no other way for you to be saved. And that is the unpardonable sin. So the unpardonable sin is ascribing the Holy Spirit work and testimony and work of Christ. But you see, Christ and the Holy Spirit are tied. The Holy Spirit is not Christ, and Christ is not the Holy Spirit, and yet they are inseparable. But Jesus says, you can say all the bad things that you want about me and use my name in vain, but you cannot play with the Holy Spirit. Okay? You can't ascribe the work of Christ in salvation to the devil. And that to say, let me give you an example that just came to my mind. It's like guys and their mothers, okay? You can say bad things about their fathers, about their sisters and stuff like that. But as soon as you say something bad about their mother, it's on. Okay? Someone is going to get beat up or someone is going to get killed. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's what Jesus is saying as a picture. Jesus is saying, okay, you can say all bad things that you want about me. That's okay. But when it comes to this one, you are in serious trouble. That's just how things are. 
Okay? And that to say, that sin of the unpardonable sin can only be committed by the reprobates. There's no believer who can commit the sin. It's impossible. Try it. Try to curse Jesus, even by yourself. You're going to see that it doesn't work. A true believer cannot commit that sin. The Holy Spirit keeps the testimony and truth of Christ in them. Let me explain it a different way again. God the Father testifies of the Son. That's what we see in the scriptures. God the Father testifies of the Son. The Son testifies of the Son. He talks about himself. And the Holy Spirit testifies of the Son. So the Godhead is centered around the Son. The Father points the Son. The Son talks about the Son. The Holy Spirit talks about the Son. So the Son is the revelation of the Godhead. So the Holy Spirit, in the ordering of things, brings the last testimony of the Son. Because even in the order of creation, you have the Father who designed the matter of creation and the Son who brings about the creation and the Holy Spirit who brings about the beauty of the creation. So in the matter of salvation, it is in that order we have election by the Father, but the Father is not the one who saves. It's the work of the Son that saves. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to beautify God's people, the spirit of holiness. He is the one who clothes us with the righteousness and holiness of Christ. Okay? So the Holy Spirit testimony or the Holy Spirit comes and puts a period to the gospel testimony and say it ends right here. The unpardonable sin works hand in hand with unbelief. That's the issue. The Jews were showing unbelief. It works with unbelief. And that is why there's so much exhortation to remain in the faith. Remain in the faith. But unbelief happens on and off even with the redeemed. But it is never to cause them to fall away from the gospel. Because even their sin of unbelief was taken care of by Christ. Christ paid for every one of your sins, including unbelief. So ultimately, you will never fall away because Christ already took care of that. You will never be an unbeliever. A sinner, yes. (laughs) 100% guaranteed. But an unbeliever, no. Once you have been born of God, you shall always be a believer. On your worst day, as on your best day. Also, we know this. All those who are born of God are kept by God. Through the power of faith. That's First Peter. We are kept by God. Through faith. For the inheritance that is yet to be revealed in heaven. So we are kept by God. Okay? Let's go to First John 5, 17 to 18. 
1 John 5, 17-18, John says, All unrighteousness is sin, and the sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps him, and the wicked one does not touch him. The wicked one touches him not. And I like the translation of the NET on verse 18 of First John. Here, this verse 18. We know that everyone fathered by God does not sin. And people who don't understand the gospel will say, see, you can't make the habit of sinning because anyone who is born of God does not sin at all. No, that's not what it's being said. They do not sin as to live the testament of Christ. They do not sin as to live the testament of Christ. But God protects the one he has fathered. So God protects you. From what? From unbelief. God protects you from unbelief. Because unbelief will be the sin that leads to death. And you and I don't commit that. We may actually go and steal at the store. But you're not going to do it. I know you're not going to do it. This requires more time to work it. But I think I gave you some nuggets to answer some things. Some reference point. I'll get to it some other time in more depth if the Lord grants it. But <laughs> but let's leave that and go back to Egypt because we still have another plague that we have to bring upon Pharaoh before we close the message. The magicians said, listen guys, this is the finger of God. And of course, as I said, the Magicians spoke more than they understood because it's God who made them to say the truth because it is by the Holy Spirit that God works miracles. That's how we end up getting entangled with all these other things. Okay? But let's go to the fourth plague. Verse 20 and following of Exodus 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be, and the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. So it seems like Pharaoh had this early morning routine to go to the water. Because God will say, go and meet Pharaoh when he goes in the morning. 
you could have been helped with a jacuzzi or something at home. <laughs> but the Lord said to Moses, you go to Pharaoh and tell him the same thing that I've been telling him to let my people go, go that they may serve me. And that's the reason why you're saved or you've been saved. Let my people go that they may serve me. We have not been saved so that we can go to heaven and see our relatives and friends. Whilst that may happen if they belong to Christ, that is not the reason. It is so that we may serve God by worshipping him. Whichever way worship is done in heaven, but here and now, it is through the truth of the gospel. We worship God through the truth of the gospel. Worship of God here in heaven does not happen apart from salvation. The gospel is our salvation. And in heaven, we exalt the one who is our salvation. Okay? So in this round of plagues, swarms of flies would come and storm the houses of the Egyptians, get into their pots, their water, their milk, their cooking oil, their expensive lotions. For those who have expensive lotions who don't use just Vaseline. <laughs> flies everywhere. They will be on the ground on which they would stand and walked, and flies are not the prettiest and cleanest of flying things. They have this buzzing sound that is very annoying, and they bite too. Yes, they do. They carry gems. But in that day, God said he would do what? Verse 22, And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. God set apart the land of Goshen, the land in which his people dwelt. This is the land in which his people dwelt. He set it apart. How? By not bringing the plague to their doors. He made the distinction between Israel and the Egyptians. Now, question. Were the children of Israel any different or better than the Egyptians? No, they were not. I'm sure after some 400 or something years they too were worshipping the Egyptian gods. The children of Israel were worshipping the Egyptian idols. And yet, God came and set them apart. That is the whole matter of sanctification. He set them apart. That the plagues would not come to them. They were separate. The elect have been set apart in Christ so that the judgment 
of their sin cannot come on them. That is sanctification. That is what sanctification means. You have been set apart by God in Christ so that the curses that God will bring on the reprobates will not come upon you. That is election on display. That is election. That is the matter of the non-imputation of sin on display because Egypt is being judged for their sin in a picture. This is not the final judgment, but they are being judged for their sin and yet God's people for the very same sins are not being judged. Okay, In Christ and in the covenant of his blood, all the elect have been set apart so that they will not experience the judgment of condemnation. And if you listen to uh, messages in the time of Joseph, when we were doing the Joseph series, we worked the testimony that Goshen was a picture of the New Testament, where God's people dwelt securely. And if you still remember, it was the best land in Egypt that was given in the days of Joseph when he became second to Pharaoh. And Joseph was a type of Christ. And God's people have been made holy by reason of the blood of the covenant because that's the land in which we dwell. In the land in which the believer dwells, there are no curses that come to them, not from God. That's Goshen. And God says, I have made the difference. I have made the separation. You cannot be sanctified because you don't do this and that. That's not the matter of real sanctification. Sanctification is by God setting you apart in Christ. Here again what God said. First Corinthians. I'll make a difference between my people and your people. I will make the difference. I will make the difference between the saved and unsaved. He will make the difference between his people and the people of Pharaoh. So where then is the free will thing? Where does it come from? Like I said, it makes me sick. Human free will is not a biblical concept, number one. It is the concept that was coined by unbelievers and still is. If you still believe in human free will, you don't believe the gospel. You do not believe the testimony of God. Human free will is not a thing because it doesn't do anything. Tying your shoes is not free will, man. (laughs) That's not the matter that we're talking about. We are speaking at the spiritual level that your will accomplishes nothing. Okay? So it is essentially human beings who have some form of religion, some form of feigned godliness, but who deny its power, denying the power of salvation as having come by Christ alone. Yeah? They come and raise their tails and want to be something before God. God will not accept that. 
Okay, we can accept that to some level and just be kind on Facebook or you just get tired of it and don't want to keep arguing it. But God will not accept that for one second. Christ alone makes the difference. Grace alone is the difference maker between saved and unsaved. The Christ who stood between the two thieves was the difference maker between them. It was not the testimony of the repentant thief that changed things. No, that's not true. Christ alone is the difference maker. The repentant thief had that testimony because of Christ. Christ was still serving his people even as he was on that cursed tree. Christ was not helpless on the cross. Jesus never was helpless not even for one second, he still was running this show. Okay? There's no one who makes the difference in salvation. It's God who does. Okay? Faith does not make the difference. Sinners are faithless by nature. Salvation is 100% conditioned on Christ and Christ alone. His faithfulness and obedience alone in meeting all the conditions of our escape from the hands of Pharaoh as a surety and substitute. Okay? I will make the difference. I love that statement. I will make the difference between my people and the people of Pharaoh. He made the difference. That's the only way you're going to make it to heaven because he made the difference. Verse 25. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. So Pharaoh makes some concession, some compromise of sorts. He says, go and sacrifice to your God here in the land of Egypt. He sets a condition for the salvation of God's people. He says the sacrifice has to be done in the land of Egypt. Let's see if Moses agrees. Verse 26. And Moses said, it is not right to do so. For we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then would they not stone us? So Moses objects to the location and says this would defile the sacrifice. It will not work. It will be like sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God, the Egyptians who know not God. Also, the Egyptians will not be pleased by such a sacrifice. They will not take it. It will be an abomination to them. It will be an offense to them. And what is Moses saying? What is Moses saying? Moses is saying, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what Moses is saying. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is an abomination to the unbelievers of which the Egyptians were. It was an abomination to them for the sacrifice to be done in their land. Verse 21, still in First Corinthians, 
for sins in the wisdom of God. The world is represented by Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. The world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to serve those who believe. Through Moses coming and saying we have to sacrifice to our God because the freedom of the children of Israel is tied to that sacrifice. Now we are going somewhere. We are only two chapters away from the sacrifice, the Passover. We have to go and sacrifice. And this sacrifice that would be an abomination to the Egyptians is none other than Christ himself. So Moses, what is the solution? How do you deal with this? First twenty-seven. We shall go three days journey in the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. Moses says, we need to go a three days journey into the wilderness. That is the three days journey that Christ went in his death and resurrection. We go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to our God as he will instruct us. And Moses is insistent that the sacrifice be done outside of Egypt. Why? Because the offerings under the law were burned outside the camp. The Christ, the sacrifice that sets free has to be offered outside of the camp. And that is what we hear in Hebrews 13. Here, Hebrews 13, 10 to 13. We are almost getting done. Hebrews 13, 10 to 13. The writer of Hebrews says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to it. The altar that we have as believers does not come from the law. Those who served under the ministry of the law could not eat of the sacrifice. That is Christ Jesus. The law does not allow you to eat of the sacrifice. That is Christ. But the redeemed have the right. We have the right to eat. We have the right to eat. Moses does not give you the right. Christ has given us the right to it. I had to just expand that. But hear this, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, the sacrifice was brought by the high priest for what? For sin. The sacrifice is for sin. Christ, the sacrifice, was given over because of our sin. Abandoned outside the camp. <laughs> the sacrifice that removes sin has to be offered outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate, outside the camp. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Christ offered or offered himself 
as God's sacrifice outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the camp, for the reason that he may sanctify the people, his people, how? With his own blood. That he may sanctify with his own blood. There's no sanctification apart from blood. There's no sanctification apart from blood. My beloved, no one is sanctified before God apart from the blood of Christ. You cannot be sanctified by things that you do or do not do. Sanctified by the blood of the sacrifice. And that is say, progressive sanctification is a lie. Because what it means is God is giving you drip, drip of blood every day, every week, every year. He is dripping a little bit of blood on you to make you more sanctified. And yet the scriptures say, we have been wholly sanctified in Christ. We have been perfected forever in Christ and we are complete in him. Complete in holiness and complete in righteousness. Progressive sanctification assumes an incomplete sanctification by Christ. That's what it is saying. It is assuming that Christ did a shoddy job. He was working on a house kind of finished the roof and some things, but it just left a mess that has to come and be picked up by James when he switches off his TV and stuff like that and become more holy. No, it's foolishness. So God insisted through Moses that they had to make the sacrifice outside of the camp of Egypt, even as Testimony of Christ. Verse 28. We are almost done. Maybe a few more minutes. So Pharaoh said, I'll let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me, please, whilst you are at it. <laughs> Pharaoh is a funny guy. <laughs> This whole judgment on him and Egypt is really playing tricks on his mind. Whilst you are at it, Moses, please intercede for me too and, and get, can you put up a prayer for me too? See, even Pharaoh is beginning to appreciate that approaching God, the God of the Bible, requires a God-appointed mediator for one to be had. Pharaoh has now better theology than a lot of people who call themselves Christians. Verse 29 and following, Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. Hear that, verse 31, and the Lord did 
according to the word of Moses. Remove Moses and say Christ. And the Lord did according to the word of Christ. Because in him all the promises of God are yes and amen. So what did he do? He removed the judgment. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But guess what? Pharaoh hadn't his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. So Moses did the work of intercession. And God answered him. And removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and his people. You see that? If the swarms of flies had been removed from Pharaoh, necessarily the swarms of flies also have been removed from his people. If God has justified Christ as righteous, then necessarily it means all those who are in the house of Christ are also deemed as righteous. No condemnation on Christ and no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you see that Pharaoh is the head of his people? Whatever happens to Pharaoh happens to his people. Yeah? And the text says, not one remained, not one remained. What is that about? God has brought about the judgment, the curses. That is what these judgments are. There are cases on Pharaoh and his people. And it is God alone who is able to remove them. Cases, as I said, are brought about by God. But when God removes cases, he does what? He removes them all. In the text says, not one fly remained. Not one. How do you account for all these little things? Not one fly remained. And that is saying Christ made complete propitiation for the sins of his people. Christ made complete propitiation. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness because he fulfilled Every jot and tittle. I believe those are the smallest Hebrew letters of the law. He did. Because if God leaves one fly in your house, if God leaves one frog, one lice, you're going to be itching. One sin unpaid, then you are still in your sins. If God leaves a single fly, you are still in your sins. And if Christ left you one thing to do to be saved, you are still in your sins. If Christ left you one thing, you go to hell. But the gospel says he paid it all. What am I saying? I'm saying as we continue to learn the unfolding of the story of Christ, we have to understand the matter of sin. 
and how it relates to the law and how they work together to produce bondage and death and how God has proposed to deal with the matter. Because the gospel is the declaration of how God has dealt with the matter of the flies and lies and lies. <laughs> yeah? And in this state, God found you. And there was nothing that you and I could do to set ourselves free from the hand of Pharaoh. This is why Pharaoh is very stubborn. There's nothing that you can do to set yourself free from the hand of Pharaoh. That's what is happening. Say in North Korea. Yeah? There's nothing that those people can do to set themselves free. Someone has to come in. I don't know how God is going to do it, but someone is going to have to come in. So he had to come and show us the way of salvation. And that way is not by way of miracles. It's not by way of the works of the law. There's no number of commandments or miracles that could be given to Pharaoh to obey for him to set the people free. There were ten plagues that were given and none of them caused Pharaoh to set the people free. Even with the ten commandments given, there's not one that you can do to be set free. Those Ten Commandments can only bring curses on you. They can never set you free. They can never make you holy or justify you before God. God is preaching. He knows all these things. He's leading everything. Because as soon as they get out of Egypt, they go into Mount Sinai, and then he codifies the thing. There are no commandments that, are, that sinners are able to do for them to be set free. Not a single one. Just one commandment for you and me, it's too much law. It's too much commandment. One commandment is too much for a sinner. Ask Adam. Right? If we shall be set free, it shall happen freely. And it has already happened. <laughs> it is not we shall overcome. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not we shall overcome. We already did. By Christ. And this is what God was preaching in Egypt. And of course, we still have a lot of nuggets to glean between chapter 9 and the Red Sea. We have to get to the Red Sea. (laughs) The Lord willing. But we praise God for his gospel truth. Okay? This was more vintage me Preaching long. Okay. Uh, the Lord gave me some strength, so we praise Him for that. I pray that it was a blessing to everyone who tuned in. And we thank you, brothers and sisters, for tuning in to our broadcast. This message is going to be available also on YouTube in the other format that plays better on your computers or TVs if you use those for casting. Anyway, we are done. We praise God and I will see you online. (laughs) Okay. All right.